Let's pray. Father and our God, as we prepare now to listen to the teaching of your word, we pray that we would put the cares of our lives aside, that we would forget about our anxiousness of this past week and the upcoming week, Lord, that we would simply focus on what your word speaks to us now. We pray indeed that uh, your word would transform us, transform our minds and our hearts, that they would be open to receive it. And we pray that Pastor David would speak your words of truth boldly and unashamedly. And we thank you again for the blessing of coming together as your body to worship you and to hear your truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are taking a short two-week break in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We looked last week in particular at the doctrine of the Incarnation. And this week, I think it's right for us to, to reflect upon the Lord's blessings over this past year. And as we anticipate the year ahead, and we are what now? Uh, not quite 12 hours, just over 12 hours from 2023 being gone. We put it in the books, we close the chapter, and I think it's fitting for us, both individually and, and corporately, to reflect upon the goodness of God, to reflect upon the blessings that He has brought to us, to consider the year ahead. And, you know, I was thinking this week, over the last couple of weeks, in fact, as I, as I listen to the conversations that happen here on the Lord's Day, as I, as I speak with many of you, and, and I consider the challenges the difficulties, the temptations in, in my own family, my own life, as we consider together the, the, the tumult, the controversy, the conflicts all around us, I'm convinced, I've been convicted that we, we need a particular meditation upon God. We need a meditation from God as we start the new year. And as I think about, and I pray for each of your families you know, I think about this. Very few of us have been spared, particularly in the last few weeks, from illness this year. There have been many that are afflicted physically in significant ways. Financial hardship has been common among us this past year. Struggles in our jobs, salvation, and, and health of your children weigh upon you. Some of you have wayward children. Some of you are dealing with extended family struggles, marriage issues, darkness of, of your mind and your thoughts, discouragement of various kinds, even death and loss of loved ones. And I haven't even mentioned yet global pandemics and medical fraud and government corruption and rampant inflation and wars and rumors of wars, terrorism. And oh, by the way, is that, is that that's not enough, it's an election year. So in these days of confusion, anxiety, fear, I found my own mind drawn to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. If you turn with me to your copy of God's Word, 
Psalm 46 is, is a favorite. It's a very short psalm, only 11 verses, and yet it, it is rich with imagery, with, with deep meaning. This was, in fact, Martin Luther's favorite psalm. In fact, it was his inspiration for the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And as the story goes, even as he was being, being summoned to the Diet of Worms, being summoned before the Pope and all of the magistry there, so-called, his good friend, Jacobus Melanchthon, would tell him, let's go and sing the 46th Psalm. This was a song that was designed to be sung, to, to, to be celebrated together among God's people. And I thought perhaps, surely God may give us all some comfort through these inspired words. And Psalm 46 gives us, no doubt, comfort, but it also should challenge us, maybe even correct us. It serves both as an encouragement and a correction. And it asks this question, are you meditating more upon God or upon your circumstances? Because one of the things that we love to confess in Psalm 46, one of the reasons that it's from the very beginning of the psalm, it draws us in. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. But often what we're tempted to think is our, our troubles are very present to us. And God is distant. Is your mind occupied with the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, or do you spend more time focused on the trouble, the things around you? So when we think in terms of, of times of either victory or distress, our gracious God has given to us an entire book of psalms, an entire book of inspired poetry that searches out and discovers the whole range of human emotions, I dare say there's not a single human emotion that anyone has ever felt or experienced that's not in some way explored in the book of the Psalms. God gives to us a way sometimes to express things that we can't even express. When the scriptures say, for example, that the Spirit helps us when we don't know how to pray, sometimes we think that's just some sort of cosmic download, that something just happens, a lightning bolt comes out of the sky, and God helps us to pray. And God's Spirit certainly is at work in us, but He also works through tangible means. He's given you a written word that you can pray the very words of God to God to help you express and wrestle with the anxieties, the fears, the joys, the sorrows, the triumphs of life. But the Psalms are designed to do more than just help us to express our emotions. They should also help us shape our emotions. Our, our, our emotions are not magisterial. They don't rule over us. They are ministerial. They ought to be a comfort to us, an encouragement to us, a servant to us. And by the power of the Spirit of the living God, the Psalms ought to not only express our emotions, but shape them and even sometimes limit them or correct them. And as I said, Psalm 46 is, is really very short. Three stanzas. And each stanza is marked by, and you'll see in, probably in your copy of God's Word, the little word selah, S-E-L-A-H. This, this is a musical term, and Hebrew scholars to this day are not absolutely certain what it means. But it seems best, the evidence seems best to think of this as, as a call to pause and praise. Stop and think. Stop and ponder 
at these moments. When you're reading through the Psalms on your own or in your families, and you see that word selah, it's a reminder. Just stop and soak it in. Stop and think about what God has just said. And so each of the stanzas is, is ended by that word, selah. And the central theme, the central theme in Psalm 46 is the presence of God. The presence of God, that God is with us. We think about God being transcendent. He has he is made everything, and He is above all things, and that is absolutely true. And also we can say God is imminent. He is near to us. He is accessible to us. And because of the presence of God, His people can be unshakable even though everything else is shaken. And so that's the title of today's sermon, Unshakable in Trembling Times. Unshakable in Trembling Times. Because God is unmovable and because God is with us, then saints, we do not have to be moved and unsettled. Even if all the world is shaken and stirred and thrown up in the air in utter chaos. So let's read through Psalm 46. There are three movements, three stanzas, and, and each of those stanzas are moving us someplace. They don't just leave us here. The very first stanza, stanza moves us from disaster to refuge. That's verses 1 through 3. Disaster to refuge. And then in verses 4 to 7, as I read it, listen to this. You will hear that we're being moved from fear to gladness or joy. And then in the last stanza, from war to peace. So God is not leading, leaving us stagnant or static. He is moving his people from disaster to refuge, from fear to gladness, and from war to peace. Let's hear now together the word of the living God. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song we might say a hymn. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come. Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And amen. Notice in the first stanza, God is moving us from disaster to refuge. 
from calamity to safety. Notice the language here. And again, the, the Psalms are giving us poetic expression. They're, giving, they're painting for us word pictures that are designed by the Holy Spirit to move us. To, to, to arrest our attention and provoke our affections towards God. He says, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Notice the language, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. There, there's a Hebrew parallelism here, as these two statements are, are meant to reinforce and build upon each other. What's the point? The earth gives way. The mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. Think about this, saints. What is more movable or immovable in the mind of man than a mountain? So as the psalmist is contemplating the world around him and thinking, what is, what is real? What is tangible? What can I depend upon? He looks at a mountain and says, well, that one's not going anywhere. That's an anchor. That one's fixed. It's a point of reference. We can navigate by that. We, we, we can trust that every morning we get up, that mountain is not going to be anywhere else but right there. Mountains are an easy picture of stability and permanence. In fact, so much so that throughout human history, there's been a temptation even to worship these mountains. Throughout the Old Testament, one of the things that was a common plague among God's people were the high places. There was something... There was a mystique with respect to these mountains. But the poetic word picture becomes even more vivid, it becomes even more unsettling than the thought of a mountain moving. The picture goes on to describe this immovable mountain trembling. It's, it's even trembling at the thought of being tossed into the roaring and foaming and swelling sea. In the mind of ancient man, the, the sea represented chaos. It represented the unknown. It represented the deepest, darkest fears, danger and disorder. It's deep, it's dark, it's mysterious, it's confusing. Just like our anxieties. Just like our thoughts sometimes of tomorrow. God speaks to us here in this poetic language intended to describe the dark range of human emotions when we are smack in the middle of disaster. And isn't this really the currency of anxiety and fear and doubt? Because we think to ourselves, yes, I know God is our refuge. I know God is my strength. I know he's my help in trouble. But what if? But what if? Sometimes psychologists will use the term, and I think it's a good one, catastrophizing. Don't we tend to do that? I don't even have to define the word, do I? We, we immediately, in our minds, think, what's the worst thing that can happen? And that's probably what's going to happen. And, and the psalmist, in a sense, is taking this to the absurd. What if even a mountain tumbles into the sea? What if that which is most fixed in our minds, most immovable from our perspective, actually trembled at the thought of falling into the sea? What if? What if it's so bad this time that God is not able or God will not, is not willing to deliver me? The psalmist begins with a confession. God is our refuge and strength, a very 
present help. You'll see, I'm reading from the ESV, there's a footnote there that's probably even the better rendering, the well-proved help in time of trouble. And we would all say, yes, amen, that's true. But what about this time? I know he's rescued before, but what about this situation? What if our financial situation does not improve? What if I lose my job? What if my boss makes life even more miserable for me? What if my son does not repent? What if my daughter does not return to the Lord? What if my husband betrays me? What if my wife is unfaithful? What if my marriage continues to hurt? What if I never get married at all? What if I don't, if I don't ever get well? What if my child does not get well? What if I lose my child? What if I never have children at all? What if my church family forsakes me? What if I forsake my church family? What if I sin and cause harm to those near me? And the what if, what if, what if, what if a mountain could fall into the sea? Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we will not fear, even if these things happen. The psalmist meditates upon his heart and said, okay, heart, self, what if the worst comes to the worst? I will not lose heart because God is my well-proved, my well-tested, my faithful refuge and strength. And so when all that you thought was stable in this life has moved or seems to have fallen, when all that you thought you could depend upon and think, well, if nothing else, that's not going anywhere. And what if it does? What if it does? When all you can see is swirling confusion and uncertainty, where do you take refuge? Where do you hide, saints? When, when anxiety overtakes you and it feels like the weight of an elephant standing on your chest, where do you go? when your mind races so fast in the middle of the night that you can't sleep. When your thoughts swirl so fast that you find yourself even having trouble breathing. When dread and doubts consume your heart to such a degree that you can't even describe what you're feeling. When it feels like you're going to drown in the rising flood of your own doubts, where do you take refuge? Where do you go? When these things happen to you, where is your refuge? Or even better yet, who is your refuge? See, God intends for us, in a sense, to feel the urgency. If there's something kind of welling up in you right now, that's by God's design. He wants you to feel the weight of this and then to look to him. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help, a well-proved help in time of trouble. When he confesses that God is our very present help, he's saying he is a God who is findable. He is a God who can be found. He is a God who is near to us. He is findable in distress. He is, in fact, the most to be found in times of distress. 
And for most of us, if you've walked with the Lord very long, you, you can look back. You can look at the, the 2020 hindsight and say, you know what, I was nearer to God in those times of affliction. I was actually nearer to God. I felt a sense of his presence even more in those times of uncertainty and anxiety and difficulty. He is most to be found in the midst of distress. So we can confess, saints, so the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, our God is a well-proved refuge, a well-tested strength. Stop and think about these things. Pause and praise God, not only for what he has done, but who he is to you. What should then we think about? If you're seeking to find the God who is present, who is very near in your present distress, where do your thoughts go? And let's think about this. As we considered last week the doctrine of the incarnation, we as Christians have even greater confidence than the psalmist did. Think about this. There was nothing defective about the faith of the sons of Korah. There was nothing deficient in their understanding of God. But we have greater light. This is why Jesus said that among those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. But he says, I tell you the truth, the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John the Baptist. Why? Not because they were morally superior, but because they had greater light. We know the presence of God in this way. He took on our human flesh and dwelt among us. This, this time that the prophets foretold, that even the angels longed to look into, saints, it's happened. We live on this side of the advent in which Christ has taken on our human nature, took to himself our infirmities and our weaknesses. So if the psalmist in the Old Testament can say he is a well-proved presence in time of trouble, how much more can we? As those who have been washed by the very blood of Emmanuel, God with us. How much more can we say? He is a well-proved help in time of distress. And for those of you who are in Christ, for those of you who are already safely in the fortress of God, who have already been entered into the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ, are you committed this year to praying for your fellow church members to find the comfort and the refuge and the safety of Yahweh. You're going to cry out to God on behalf of your brothers and sisters. When you look around and you see your brother struggling to put one foot in front of the other, will you pray for him? When you see your sister wrestling with doubts and uncertainty, when life has just slapped her in the side of the face, are you willing to pray for her? And call upon the name of God on her behalf and ask the Lord to strengthen her 
Ask the Lord to encourage her heart that she will find the refuge in the Son. Are you praying for your family members, for your neighbors, for those who God has appointed as civil authorities? That God will draw them to himself. Listen, you see the same headlines I do. Our, our world is, is, is uncertain. How should we respond as God's people? Do we join a chorus of fretting and wailing and moaning, or do we join a chorus of chorus of prayer, of calling upon the name of the true and living God, believing that he is the fortress, he is the refuge that we need, that our neighbors need, that our church members need, that our families need? Are you crying out to God for those who are lost in our community, that they will find refuge in the midst of a calamity that we don't know what's coming? Notice the second stanza. It is not only that God brings us from calamity to safety or from danger to refuge, but he brings us from fear to gladness. Look at verse 4. There is a river. In the Hebrew, the very first word is river. Why is that important? Because we've just thought about mountains falling into a tumultuous, tempestuous sea. We've just seen a scene in creation that's almost unimaginable. And the very next word is river. Calm. Peacefulness. Life-giving flow of water. You know, the, the most frequent command given by God to his people in all of the scriptures, you know what it is? The most frequent command in all the Bible, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It takes on various forms. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. There's a reason God has to repeat himself, isn't there? And and, and I see a lot of nodding heads. We all know there's a reason God has to repeat himself because we forget. Even when we remember in our minds, you know, I know the command, but, but our, our hearts don't grab hold of that. Anxiousness and even fear are normal responses to distress. It's normal. I told, our, told my kids many times, you know, if, if we don't live in this part of the country, but if a bear ran out of the woods, if you're not afraid, something's wrong. It's a right response to, be, to have that, that, that adrenaline rush, the, the, the physiological response to fear, to anxiety. So it doesn't mean you're not a true Christian if you're tempted to fear. If you wrestle with anxiety, it doesn't mean something is defective in your faith. And yet God meets us at the precise place of our anxiety and fear so that it can terminate in him. So that we're not left in bondage to that fear. We're not driven by our anxieties. So the psalmist here, as he takes his own mind and he takes our minds away from the mountains trembling and falling into the sea, and he says, here's a river. Here's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. 
Notice the contrast to the falling mountains, the roaring seas, and in the midst of this city of God, we find a smooth, flowing river. And the city of God here is described by the psalmist as a holy habitation of God. A holy habitation of God. This is where God dwells. And the structure of Psalm 46 is, 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 is instructive to us as well. Again, it's a short psalm, three stanzas, and often in Hebrew poetry, the middle is what's most important. The middle is most important. And, and what we find here, the structure, verses 1 through 3, paint a picture of creation itself crumbling. Then we jump down to verses 8 through 11, we'll look at that briefly in a moment, shows a picture of the nations of the world at war. All creation tumbling, nations at war, and right smack in the middle is sandwiched the city of God with a river in its midst. For those of you who are more artistic, if you were to to try to capture this scene with oil and canvas or watercolor or ink or something, some other medium. You would want, the artist wants the eye, the viewer's eye, to go to a certain place. And so on the fringes of the painting is war and tumult. And over here on this other side is the, is the creation itself crumbling, mountains falling into the sea, but your eye goes to the middle. And there in the middle is the city of God. And in the middle of the city of God is a river flowing through it. Dale Ralph Davis makes this comment. He says, verses 4 through 7 suggest that God's people dwell in a sort of cosmological sandwich. I like that. We dwell in a sort of cosmological sandwich. What then do we find here? We find, as noted, a strange peace. Verse 4. No sooner do we read a river than we can't help but think of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 10, and a river was flowing out of Eden. The illusion, if it is that, implies we catch a whiff of paradise in the middle of the trash and turmoil and tremors of our verse 2 and 3 world. As we think about a river of life flowing through this city of God, we think about the nourishment that God has given to his people. Our minds go to Eden, but our minds also should go to Ezekiel 47. And we won't turn there, but maybe put it in your notes and go read later. In Ezekiel 47, the Lord is taking Ezekiel in a vision. He shows him the temple, and out of this temple, from the very throne, flows what? A river. And on both sides of that river, what do we find? Life, flourishing, fruitfulness. Then we turn from there and we go to, to the end of the book. We go to Genesis, or to, to Revelation chapter 21. And we see a river flowing through the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Once again, God gives us this poetic picture that's meant to soothe our restless spirits. But, but what, is, what is meant by these images? What is meant by the term, the city of God, what is meant by this river whose streams make glad? We have consistent images 
throughout the Old and New Testaments of the river representing the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit. And so in the midst of all of the calamity around us, again, this, to use Davis's words, this cosmological sandwich in which we find ourselves, here in the middle is the Spirit of the living God flowing in us and through us. What is meant by the city of God? Well, this is, God, this is the place of God's habitation. And under the Old Covenant, that was a particular place. It was Jerusalem, the city of David. And not only that, the temple. But not only that, inside the Holy of Holies. But not only that, inside the Ark of the Covenant. That was where God's presence symbolically resided. But now under the New Covenant, where is the place, and I'm going to use air quotes, where is the place of God's habitation? It's not confined to a geography. It's not confined to a building. It's not confined to a nation. God's Spirit inhabits His people. God's Spirit inhabits His people. So if we explain the image further, the very fullest expression of God's presence is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. God with, <clears throat> God with us. The Apostle John describes it this way, and we looked at this verse last week in John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But let's trace this thread. Let's pull on this thread a little bit and trace it through. In John chapter 4, Jesus taught that he himself is the source of living water. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus is using the Old Testament prophetic language. And in case you think I'm jumping too far or drawing too much of a conclusion from his words, listen to what he says just a few chapters later in John chapter 7. You find this beginning in verse 37. Jesus also said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what do we have from the Lord Jesus Christ? We have the heaven-given inspiration or explanation of the inspired prophetical text. What does this river represent? What is the flowing living water? Jesus says, I'm the source of that. What is this water? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit of the living God. So not only is Jesus the Son of God who is with us, Emmanuel, not only is Jesus the source of this river whose streams make glad the city of God, but it's also by the power of His resurrection from the dead, we, can, we know that His Spirit has made His church the city of the living God. The church is Zion. The church is the city of God, the dwelling place of God among men. And the apostolic record makes this very clear. 
in 1 Corinthians 3, and we can think about this in two ways, on two levels. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Paul says, do you not know that, now, I'm going to have to, can I Texanize this? See, in our, in our English Bibles, unless you have a King James, we don't differentiate in the English between you singular and you plural. In Texas, we do. Y'all, you and y'all. It, it, it's easy, right? But in our English Bibles, we just read you, and we don't necessarily know. Sometimes we have to look carefully, is this singular or plural? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this like we would read it here in Texas. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and y'all are that temple. He's speaking corporately. He's speaking in the plural. That we, as God's gathered covenantal people, are the dwelling place of God most high. We are the city of God. But the presence of God goes a step further. Still in the same, the same human author, the Apostle Paul, the same letter, writing to the same church, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now he's speaking in the singular. Or do you not know that your singular body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So what, what is it? Does God dwell with me individually or with all of us together? Yes. Yes. If you are in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within you. He is in you a river of life. He is in you a river whose streams make glad the city of God, but and not but and also, He is in us gathered corporately. The body of Christ is the city of God, the dwelling place of God among man. So, saints, when creation itself feels threatened, and and you can hear the pundits. You don't have to look very far to hear the pundits in our day to say, you know, they will catastrophize about creation itself. They will, they will claim that everything but mountains falling into the sea. In fact, if they're ice mountains, they are falling into the sea, right? That's the narrative. Mountains move, seas roar, nations rage and totter, and yet in the midst of all of that, the cosmological sandwich right in the middle is God's presence causing his people to rejoice in him giving life to his people, giving comfort to his people, giving encouragement to his people. Note in verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns because God is immovable and because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is God and because he indwells you and because he indwells us. We will not be moved, even if the worst comes to the worst. Even if nations should tumble. Even on the world geopolitical stage, that which is viewed as immovable, the good old U.S. of A., that's the mountain from our limited 200-year perspective. 
of immovable entities, even if the mountains should tumble into the sea. We shall not be moved. God is in the midst of his people. He brings help in the morning. The language here, Dale Davis points out that this phrase, God will help her when morning dawns, it literally says when the morning turns. There's only one other place in the scriptures where that phrase appears. It's in the book of Genesis. I'm sorry, in the book of Exodus. When God has led his people out of Egypt, and in the morning, when the morning turns, what do they discover? All of Pharaoh's army has been destroyed. All of it. Scholars also think, we can't be certain of this, but that Psalm 46 is, is a meditation upon the events when the king of Assyria attacked Israel, or attacked Judah, under the reign of Hezekiah. Uh, a king by the name of Sennacherib. Isn't that a good name? Sennacherib. And the Assyrians not only were threatening Israel, taunting Israel, but the, the, the Assyrians were known for their atrocities. There were things that I wouldn't even speak about publicly that the Assyrians did to their enemies. Horrific, unspeakable things. All designed to terrorize and to instill a heart of fear in their opponents. And Sennacherib, by his emissary, sent a letter to Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah. And in that letter, he reminds them that all of your, all these other kings that you've heard about, they all thought they could beat me too. And they've all been devoted to total destruction. And implicit in that letter, especially to the king receiving it, was you won't die peacefully. You won't die humanely or quickly. It was designed to instill fear. And Hezekiah receives this letter, reminding him of all of that. And Hezekiah, we're told in 2 Kings chapter 19, he went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread the, Lord, or spread the letter before the Lord, and he prayed. And he prayed, and I would commend that to you, to go and read that. He so, Lord, you know their threats. You know their taunts. You know their might and their strength. Will you please deliver us? Do you remember what happened? Do you remember what happened? And again, this is where I think the psalm is referencing either or both the destruction of Pharaoh's army or the destruction of the Assyrians. God will help her when morning dawns. In 2 Kings chapter 19, this is what we read in verse 35. And that night, the very night... Then Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, spread the letter out before the Lord, and said, Lord, this is yours. They're threatening you along with us because God is in their midst. And that very night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. What was that scene like? I mean, we can all 
give testimony of answered prayer, can't we? Anybody want to volunteer that they can top this one? 185,000 of your enemies. That's almost the population of the entire city of Conroe. Dead, on the ground before you. And the refrain, and we see twice, verse 7, we see again in verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. Again, the presence of God is the key thing. The Lord of hosts is with us. The same Lord, what do you mean Lord of hosts? The Lord of all the angels, of all the powers. And here, one angel of the Lord went and slayed 185,000 men of war. The Lord of hosts, brother, is with you. The Lord of hosts, my dear sister, is with you. If you are in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in your midst. He is that river of life which flows in you and through you. You shall not be moved. Now, this is covenant language. Anytime you're reading through the Psalter and you, and you see this language, the God of Jacob, two things should immediately come to mind. One is this is, this is covenant language that reminds us that God keeps his promises because God had promised to Abraham. And then God was not faithful to Ishmael, the illegitimate son, but to Isaac. And then not to Esau, but to Jacob. So we see this language, the God of Jacob. It should remind us that God elected us, he chose us, and he covenanted with us. But there's a second thing that comes to mind. Do you remember Jacob? What sort of character was he? Not the one who deserved that grace. Not the one who deserved God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. So when you hear that, when you look at that phrase, the God of Jacob, the God who keeps promises to worthless sinners is the one who is with us. The one who undeservedly, without any merit in us, keeps his faithfulness towards us. Brothers and sisters, is that good news? The God of Jacob is with you. Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob is your fortress. Friends, do you know this comfort? For, for those of you who are in Christ, I pray that you're encouraged, that you're, that you're established and built up more firmly in your faith, that your faith is, is grown and increased and strengthened by the Spirit of God as you hear the Word of God. But for those of you who are not in Christ, who don't know this refuge, who don't know this safety, there is a blessing offered to you in the midst of a world that is uncertain, in the midst of a tomorrow that is not guaranteed to you, God offers you peace. He offers to abide with you, to dwell with you, but not on your terms, on His. And what are those terms? You must believe the gospel of His Son. You must believe that he sent his only begotten son into this world to die, not for sins generally, but for yours, because you needed that. There was no other way for you to be reconciled. Will you believe that? Will you respond in faith, believing that God has indeed raised Christ from the dead 
as an acceptable sacrifice, an atonement for your sin. And that all of his perfection, all of his obedience, all of his righteousness by faith is credited to you. That's why you can say, if you're in Christ, the God of Jacob is with me. Not because I deserved it, but because God graciously lavished his love upon me in the person and work of his only begotten son. So I tell you the truth, according to the authority of God's word, if you will flee to God through Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will find refuge in him. You will find an abiding, lasting comfort that cannot be taken away from you even if the mountains fell into the sea. Even if the whole world came undone, you're still safe. Because God, the God of Jacob, abides with you. So we see this movement from disaster to refuge, from fear to gladness, and then lastly, and very briefly, we see a, from a movement from war to peace. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. As I alluded to earlier, this last section poetically paints an image of a whole world embroiled in war. What's the answer to that? What's the remedy? Where's the comfort in the midst of that? It is God alone who has the power to bring disaster. It is God alone who has the power to stop it. We, we see that it's God alone who crushes his opponents and ends all opposition. Now this is an interesting phrase, and it's a phrase that I think is, is, is misunderstood and misrepresented often in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Often that's, that's spoken as sort of a whisper, like this is a gentle appeal by God to his children. Come, just get your Bible and your journal and just come be still and come away with me. That's not what this is. That's not what this is. Literally, rather than be still, God shouts here. What does he shout? Stop it. Knock it off. Hush. You know, it's the same words that we saw our Lord Jesus command to the storm. Command the wind and the wave to cease. We, we know this, one, because the, the Hebrew word is, is better represented with that idea of, of stop, of ceasing. But also, God doesn't use his familial, covenantal name Yahweh here. He does. In verse 7, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts is with us. Here he uses his more general name. God is speaking here not to his people, but to the nations. And to the nations, he says, hush! You know, it's kind of like Jesus said, Speaking to us as parents, he said, you being parents know how to good give, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. What parent hasn't had that experience? You, you walk into a room and there's tumult and turmoil and there's fights and quarrels 
and you walk in as a parent and say, hush, you, you go over here, you go over here, and you listen to me. Why? Because I'm mom or I'm dad. So what God does, but on a much bigger authoritative scale, he says, hush, hush, stop, knock it off, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is saying to man, be still, you're not in charge. You're not in control here. You, are, you have no authority in this world that hasn't been given to you by me. So you can hear the parental tone now, right? Gina and the kids call this my bad dog voice. It's a, the parental authority. Hush. Stop it. Do you know that it is the voice of God that causes conflict to cease. It is the voice of God that calmed the wind and the waves instantly. It is the voice of God that makes all striving, all conflict come to an end. And sometimes in your home, it takes the voice of mom or dad to stop a quarrel, doesn't it? Well, how much more does the voice of God with infinite authority that's not derived from someone else but's original to him make wars and quarrels and conflicts cease? And the question to you, do you know this peace? Has God spoken this peace to you? There's no more greater conflict to address. If you're not in Christ, the greatest conflict that should be in front of your attention is the conflict you have with God. The scriptures say that every single man, woman, child, every boy, every girl is born at enmity with God, born against God. And the only peace that comes is through the very voice of God, through the word who became flesh. And today, he commands you to cease from your striving with him. He says to you, knock it off and submit to me. I will be exalted, not only among the nations, but in you. Knock it off. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that God sent his only son into the world to offer peace with those who were at enmity with him, peace with those who had rebelled against him. Now, I think we can understand this, this section both literally, in the sense that God causes actual literal wars to cease, and also figuratively. God is a peacemaker. He is the one who brings peace. And by the blood of his own son, he offers peace to men and commands them to be at peace with him and with one another. But if we argue from the greater to the lesser. God has created peace between man and himself. Do you think he can create peace in your relationships? Within your family? Within your marriage? Within his churches? 
You think God, the one who can say, knock it off, can create peace? In our present national and international distress, what do you fear? Do you believe that, that it is God alone who can speak peace? There's, there's no amount of political maneuvering that we can do to solve our problems. And, and you all know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's not to say we shouldn't have input and be involved. I'm not saying any of that. But we know at the end of the day, only God can speak peace. Only God can cause peace to happen. And so whether it's worldwide pandemics or economic collapse, economic collapse or nations falling, we must fear, above everything else, God himself. Are we willing to fear God? The psalm ends with the same refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, if you're in Christ, the fact that the God of hosts is with you is good comfort. At least it ought to be for us. But if you're not in Christ, the fact that the Lord of hosts, the Lord who commands a single angel to wipe out 185,000 men in one night, that's not good news. That a God of infinite might and power is present with you. And you have no refuge. You have no place to hide. The prophets spoke about the coming of the Lord, that even that men would try to hide in caves to escape the wrath of God, and they would be unable to do it. The Lord of hosts is with us. The holy, eternal, most wise, and most powerful God surely has sworn that he will make his presence known to men, one way or another either by the comfort and peace of refuge and safety in him or by an unspeakable and eternal terror outside of him. And for those who humble themselves and come to him by faith in his promised rescue and his son, he, he dwells with peaceful power, stabilizing power. The kind of power that makes us an unshakable city. An immovable fortress. He dwells in sure comfort. He dwells in gracious gladness. But for those who refuse that invitation to dwell with him in peace, he promises a completely different manifestation of his presence. A completely different manifestation of his power. He promises wrath and punishment. But in both cases, his, his promise is sure. His covenant is unbreakable. So where are you? Do you find yourself in the refuge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Has he taken you in your own life, your own mind, your own heart from disaster to refuge, from the disaster of your sin and iniquity to refuge in Christ? Has he taken you from, from fear of God's judgment, fear of being found in your sin, fear of being discovered, and taken you to gladness, a joy of sin forgiven, of debt canceled, of righteousness imputed? Has he taken you from war, fighting, striving, even within yourself, with other men, with God himself? Has he taken you from that strife, that striving, that conflict to peace?
to peace with him. That's the movement of the Psalms. It, is, it, is, is, it takes place on a cosmological level, but it also takes place individually. From disaster to refuge, from fear to gladness, from war to peace. May the Lord comfort us with his word. And saints, as we reflect upon the year behind and the year ahead, I don't want to impose upon your conscience anything that the Word of God does not. I'm not authorized to do that. But I say this as, a, as, a, as an exhortation to wisdom, and I'm preaching to myself at this point, and you just happen to be listening in. Take note of those things that you take in, whether it's news reports or reports from other people or conversations, take note of those things that are causing you to lose comfort. Take note of those things that stir up your anxiety. Take note of those things that increase your level of fear, that take your eye off of Christ. And maybe wisdom would require that you moderate those intakes. I can't command you I have no authority whatsoever to command you to turn off CNN or Fox News. I can't do that. But I can appeal to wisdom that if that's causing anxiety in you, maybe that's not a good idea. Amen? I can't say that scrolling your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed is sin. I can't say that. But I can say if it's causing your doubt and your fear and your anxiety to increase, that maybe wisdom would suggest you should spend less time there. Amen? And may we encourage one another in like manner not to impose where God has not spoken. We cannot say, thus saith the Lord on some of these things, but we can say, brother, sister, is this a good idea? Is this wise for you to spend your time there? Is it wise for you to invest your mental energy there? Is it wise for you to have that steeped into your home and into your family on a constant drip, drip, drip? And we can appeal to one another on the basis of wisdom, can we not? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are the Lord of hosts, that you are the God of Jacob, that you are our fortress, that you are in our midst, and that in you, we are immovable, unshakable. If all the world should tumble into the sea. Lord, will you increase our faith? Help us to meditate upon those things that will build us up, upon those things that will encourage one another, upon those things which will exalt you and glorify you and humble ourselves. And may you give us wisdom to forsake those things that are not helpful to us. Will you help us to encourage and exhort one another, to pray for one another, to seek your face together as God's people? We ask this for Christ's sake and for the good and prosperity of your churches. Amen.